Right on. Well, welcome in, everybody. Thank you for uh, coming at uh, 8 a.m. Uh, maybe it's 10 a.m. for your bodies if you're from the central time zone like I am. Uh, in which case, great. If you're Pacific time, I'm so sorry. This is just this is the best we can do. Uh, we're talking today about becoming wounded healers, responding to um, religious trauma. And I want to start by telling you a little bit of the story of how I stumbled into uh, experiences of religious trauma and why this has come a thing for me in my, my own ministry and thinking and reflection. Uh, several years ago, we uh, moved to a new uh, neighborhood and our church is kind of organized as house churches or missional communities which focus on neighborhoods or networks of relationship that we kind of show up and join and see what God's up to and just kind of make our life there. Uh, and so as a part of our process of discerning, okay, what, what does missional community look like for us in our new neighborhood? A small group of us uh, selected a few different places in our neighborhood to join and, and participate and show up and kind of observe. And one of those was a board gaming group at a local bar that met on Sunday nights. And we were drawn to go back just on the basis of how hospitable they were to us. Uh, immediately welcomed us in. I had never played serious board games, the obscure ones, you know, beyond the the target shelf kind of board games before. I'm right-brained, I'm not left-brained, you know, I'm not built for strategy board gaming, so I was out of my element, I felt intimidated, and they were so kind and hospitable to us. And so we kind of dove all in and started making it our rhythm to go every week, and they started inviting us into their homes, and we started inviting them into our homes, and uh, before you knew it, it wasn't us and them, it was just us. Uh, we were a part of them, and they were a part of us. Uh, and a few years into this relationships with, with folks in this board gaming community, I was, uh, I was in a doctoral program, and I was studying ethnography, which is the, uh, how sociologists study people and culture. And, and one of the pillars of ethnography is observation and participation, which we'd been doing in this board gaming group. The other pillar is in-depth interviews, where you draw out the wisdom, the experiences, the cultural frames by listening deeply to your neighbors. And I thought, you know, I'd really love to learn more about this board gaming group that I am a part of and what makes it tick and why it's so meaningful to the folks who are a part of it. And so we invited you know, nine or 10 of our friends in this board gaming group and there may be 100 or 120 that are a part of this broader network uh, that we have come into contact with. Um, so we interview nine or 10 of our friends. And most of the questions were about the experience of community, and, uh, except for one question at the end, because I can't help it. You know, my friends know I'm a pastor, so it's not like, surprise, you know, here's a spiritual question. You know, they know who I am. Uh, so we ask a question like, um, is there anything spiritual to you about your experience in this group? Is there anything transcendent to you? And uh, most of my friends would self-identify as atheist or agnostic. And so predictably they said, uh, you know, I'm not sure how to answer that question. I don't really have categories for answering that question, but can I tell you the horrible experiences that I've had 
in the church. Uh, almost to a person. I mean, it blew me away. Uh, it was so significant and widespread. Even in this small group of friends we were interviewing, uh, that it, it surfaced my own experiences. It made me think about people in Storyline, the church that I'm a part of, uh, who had similar experiences. And so I was, uh, it got my attention. Uh, I couldn't turn away. I had, to, I had to lean in, especially because these stories were heartbreaking. And I could see the pain that my friends and neighbors were carrying. And so that led me on a journey to focus my doctoral work on learning more about uh, spiritual abuse and religious trauma. And I want to share with you this morning some of the things that I learned, uh, some of the themes of the research about the kind of the nuance and the nature of the harm that I encountered, uh, some, some cultural concepts that helped to describe and illuminate the experiences that my neighbors and my storyline church folks have had. Uh, and then also to offer uh, some ways that we can be wounded healers. What does it look like to have a posture as a, as a person uh, following Jesus, uh, devoted to following Jesus and to inviting others to be disciples of Jesus? How do we have a posture among our neighbors that is healing rather than harmful? Um, so I want to talk about what, what some of those shifts and frames might look like. Uh, and I want to give you a heads up uh, just to be fair. Uh, I'm going to tell some stories out of the gate that are really hard. Uh, and so I, I want you to know that that content is coming. And I want to bless you to take care of yourself however you need to take care of yourself. Because um, uh, there, there is heartbreak in these experiences for sure. Um, the first theme, are, and I'm going to go over just three, three of the themes that I encountered. There are a few others, but the, the first big theme has to do with terminating relationship. Uh, one of my friends and all of my friends gave their informed consent to share their stories, uh, and you'll hear pseudonyms this morning to protect their privacy and well-being. Uh, but one of my friends, Chris, grew up in a West Texas church that was really focused on uh, uh, the millennial kind of promises and millennial expectation and end time kinds of stuff. Uh, they had armed guards at the front doors of the church every Sunday when folks came. Uh, before Y2K, they built huts out in the fields, you know, in preparation for that. Hours and hours and hours of study and uh, time kind of receiving the teaching of the pastor of that church. Uh, they were so serious about the imminent return of Jesus that they discouraged Chris and his, his wife, who they just married, uh, don't even bother having kids because uh, the world is too dangerous and it's not going to matter. Jesus is going to come anytime. Uh, and Chris says, you know, that those experiences were really weird and created all kinds of dissonance for them, but the real harm came when the weight of that dissonance led them to decide, you know, for the, we want to have a family, and for the sake of our family, we feel like we need to kind of separate from this church and group. We need to leave. Um, they were, they trusted the leadership of this church less and less on, because of a number of things. 
But he says the most harmful thing wasn't all of the, the religious doctrines and the eccentricity around the end times. Uh, it was what happened when they told their family, we can't be a part of this anymore because they were completely cut off. Uh, and Chris describes standing face to face with his father and his father telling him things like, I always knew you were weak. I, I knew this was going to happen. In fact, I've, I've kept you at arm's length because I, I figured this day might come. Um, and, and Chris talks about how uh, the, it felt uh, they couldn't live in that same town anymore. They had to move hours away. Um, and he describes it like the, the Jenga tower of his life just crumbling down. His, his assumptive world was shattered. They lost their social network. They lost their friends. They lost their family. They lost everything uh, and had to start completely over in a new place. That was the pain of uh, shunning, ostracization, terminating relationship. The next theme has to do with mistreating those at the margins of, of power, uh, particularly of like white, straight, cisgendered male power, um, and particularly uh, uh, females and queer folks. In my, in my research, it makes me think of Rachel, who grew up in a really conservative Southern Baptist homeschooling co-op, and she was introduced to the teachings of Bill Gothard, who talked about the umbrella of protection, um, which is a, a framework for, um, for patriarchy, essentially, that at the top of the umbrella is God, and then under God is, uh, is the man or men or husbands, and underneath the, the umbrella of the husband is uh, the, the wife or wives, and then uh, the children beneath that. And it represents this hierarchy of authority and power. And Rachel describes uh, being taught this framework and being taught that if, if you come out from underneath that umbrella, uh, underneath your place, if you're insubordinate, if you don't, respect the authority of your parents or of your husband or of the pastor who is God's representative, um, then you open yourself up to the attacks of Satan, to punishment. So there's, there's a lot of fear that's built into, if I go against this, if I doubt this or resist this authority structure, something bad will happen to me. Uh, Rachel describes vigorously taking notes in church uh, because she felt like, you know, my, my thoughts and feelings can't really be trusted. I, I, need, I need a man, I need men to tell me uh, uh, that uh, what, what is true uh, because I can't, I can't trust myself. Um, so much so, later on she goes to college and when she experiences sexual assault from a young man, she blames herself for it. It must have been something that I did. And all of that is connected to this, this hierarchy, this umbrella that, that was, uh, that was uh, trained and taught into her at a young age. She later described thinking about returning to church and feeling this sense of panic and anxiety in her body just at the prospect of going into a church building. Uh, given the things that had happened to her. And we'll, we'll talk about what that is exactly in a little bit. Another friend, Henry, 
uh, grew up in what he describes as a, a Fox News evangelical church. Uh, he was a, a pastor's kid. And when he was young, he told his parents, hey, I, I think I'm gay. And the first thing his parents said was, you can tell no one about this. Uh, you have to keep this a secret because if you don't, if this gets out, your father will lose his job and will be in, in deep trouble. And so the whole burden of the family's finances and well-being are put on the shoulder, shoulders of this young man. And you can imagine the shame and self-loathing that emerge from feeling like, oh, there is something about me that is so wrong. I can't tell anybody. This is too dangerous. And so, so Henry enters into um, almost 15 years of reparative or conversion therapy um, to try to fix uh, his orientation, his attraction to, um, to his same sex, uh, only to find out at the end of, after more of a decade of therapy, to find out from his therapists um, yeah, we, we've actually known all along that this isn't really possible. We don't, we don't even believe this works ourselves. Uh, and, and to imagine the, uh, the shock, the betrayal of feeling like you've been lied to for more than a decade of being in therapy, being in, in reparative ministry and trying to fix this or whatever. Lots of harm there. Uh, the final story has to do with uh, a theme of, of witnessing harm. And these are folks that experienced harm. I'll take some questions at the end, if that's okay. okay. Right on. Uh, these are folks who experienced harm, who weren't the direct recipients of it, uh, but they were close to those who experienced the brunt of the harm and the, the impact that it had on them. Um, for instance, Teresa grew up in uh, a Catholic parish in the Northeast, and uh, went to the, the school, the parish school in her neighborhood, and was really um, close to one of her classmates, who she watched over time uh, become depressed and, and anxious and kind of uh, ingrown on himself. Uh, he just became a shell of a person. Uh, and then her friend died by suicide. And she later found out that her friend had been sexually abused by a young minister in the school, in the church, uh, and that as a response, the senior minister in this church had tried to call for justice and was transferred somewhere else. Uh, And the young minister was also transferred somewhere else. And and she is left with the death of her friend and uh, the apparent covering up of all of these terrible things that had happened to her dear friend. She later goes to a Christian college and one of her good friends at college attempts suicide because of some mental health challenges. And her friend is expelled and blamed because she doesn't fit the standards of the university. And it was in those experiences that Teresa said, you know what? I'm done with this. I don't want to have anything to do with this. I, I really love the values of Jesus. I mean, and didn't Jesus care for the poor and for the outcast and for the marginalized? And here, the church is doing opposite of that. And she said, I'm never stepping foot in a church building again. This is, this is the opposite of what they're saying that it is. Uh, she didn't leave because she didn't 
think the teachings of Jesus were valuable. She left because she believed them. She left because she did believe in caring for the outcast and the marginalized and the poor, uh, the very thing that the church was not doing. And it, even witnessing the harm that took place, well, uh, the weight of that experience was enough to collapse uh, any allegiance or faith that she had because it just, it all felt false because of her experiences. Uh, I didn't have language for it then, but um, what I discovered was experiences of spiritual abuse and religious trauma. Um, so I want to spend a little bit of time defining my terms here. Uh, first to talk about kind of the impact of these experiences on um, the bodies and the, the brains of my neighbors and church folks. Vessel uh, Vanderkolk defines trauma uh, as not just an event that took place sometime in the past, but it's the imprint left by that event, by that experience on the mind and the brain and the body. It is, it's the way our bodies carry the harm and it, that, that uh, keep us kind of locked in the eternal present of that experience. And it can be activated by, by memory, by smell, by another encounter that gets us into uh, either fight or flight or freeze or fawn modes of trauma. Um, this is no less real. To, to talk about religious trauma or spiritual trauma, it's no less somatic, it's no less neurobiological, um, than any other form of trauma. It, it is trauma with a capital T. Uh, one of my favorite definitions for trauma is Dr. Gabor Mate, who kind of takes a slightly different angle to say again that it's, trauma is not the thing that happens to us, but it's what we hold inside in the absence of an empathetic witness. Uh, trauma is what happens to us when, when we are in circumstances where we feel so isolated and disconnected from anyone who could support us or help us that our, our body kind of locks up under that overwhelm. Our body has this traumatic experience in the absence of someone to say, hey, I see you and I'm with you and I'm, I'm here to help you. I acknowledge what's happening to you. Uh, closely related to trauma is this concept of moral injury, which is perpetrating or failing to prevent, bearing witness to, or learning about acts that transgress deeply held moral beliefs and expectations. I think you see this especially in um, stories like Teresa's, um, and because moral injury, one expression of moral injury is like a a secondary kind of traumatic stress where, where by virtue of being close to someone who's traumatized or harmed, I myself carry that in my own body and brain and mind. Uh, and, and moral injury has a, it has a moral component. So in the same way, it, it's the degree to which Teresa saw this terrible thing happen and it violated, deeply violated her own moral compass. And created a fracture in her witnessing because this is the thing that this shouldn't be happening. This is the height of hypocrisy. This is the opposite of what the church says that it's all about. And it, it creates a psychic injury in those who witness it. Uh, another expression of moral injury might also be called something like uh, participation trauma. Um, we experience trauma to the extent we participate in something that is harmful, 
and it damages and diminishes us in the process. And we carry the weight of that trauma and harm in our own bodies by virtue of perpetrating it as well. Uh, another term is spiritual abuse. Uh, and, and the language of abuse where trauma kind of focuses on uh, what we hold in our bodies and brains and what survivors or victims experience themselves. Abuse centers the, the harmful actions, the, thing that, the things that happened, the, uh, the imbalance of power in relationships. Uh, this definition from Dr. Cindy Matthews, um, spiritual abuse can be defined as any abuse or trauma done in the name of religion or the deity associated with that religion. Um, so uh, one thing I like about this definition is the way that it, um, it, it gives uh, eyes to see the presence of spiritual abuse in other forms of abuse as well. So that when Teresa's friend uh, experienced sexual abuse, that was not only an experience of sexual abuse, it was simultaneously an experience of spiritual abuse because it happened in a religious context. It, it, it happened in a broader religious institution and in a religious school. Uh, it, was, it was motivated and occurred in the context of this spiritual environment. So anytime uh, we experience physical or emotional or sexual or verbal abuse um, in a family system, or in a church, or in a small group where, where the environment and culture is explicitly religious, there's also a layer of spiritual abuse that's experienced and occurred. Anytime a spiritual leader, under the moniker of spiritual leadership, uh, harms or abuses another person, it, it, it's spiritual abuse, in addition to whatever form of abuse it is, be, by virtue of that leader's spiritual role. Uh, one more definition, um, and that's to kind of return to trauma to talk about specifically um, religious trauma or spiritual trauma. Uh, if trauma is the imprint of abuse on a person's body, brain, and mind, then spiritual trauma is the imprint of spiritual abuse. Or uh, other language that's emerging is adverse religious experiences which echoes, if you're familiar with the ACEs study, adverse childhood experiences. There's emerging language for adverse religious experiences. And again, it's the imprint of those adverse experiences on a person's body, brain, and mind. Whew, it's heavy. Um, all, all of this for me uh, raised the question, um, as a pastor, uh, as, a, as an armchair theologian, um, uh, how, does my, how does my faith and my theology intersect with all of this, with these experiences of harm? Um, how, how can theological reflection and my faith inform how I respond to my friends and church folks <coughs> who have experienced religious trauma? Uh, or um, where is God? Where is God in the midst of this trauma that I'm encountering? Uh, and I was led uh, through, through feminist and womanist and liberation theologians uh, to the crucifixion story of Jesus, um, where they envisioned this story as a traumatic event, that the, 
the crucifixion, crucifixion experience of Jesus at the heart of our faith, at the center of the gospel, is also a, it's a traumatic event that Jesus experiences. And as I considered the story of Jesus in light of these terms and definitions, uh, it occurs to me that, that Jesus, in, in his road to, the, to his crucifixion, uh, he experiences physical abuse. He experiences emotional abuse. Uh, he even experiences sexual abuse. He likely hung naked from the cross. Uh, and, and in addition to all of those forms of abuse that Jesus experiences, uh, he also experiences spiritual abuse to the extent that his abuse was instigated and catalyzed by um, the religious elite whose power was threatened by Jesus' presence and who forced Rome's hand to crucify Jesus because he, he was a threat to the status quo in their religious system. Um, so Jesus... By, the virtu- by virtue of his crucifixion and resurrection, is a survivor of religious trauma and spiritual abuse. Uh, and and the, uh, the, the takeaway there, especially for folks who have experienced trauma uh, and religious trauma in particular, is that Jesus has solidarity with us in our experience of spiritual abuse and religious trauma. Jesus knows what it's like to experience abuse and trauma. Uh, and, and to the extent that Jesus was raised from the dead, wounds and all, Jesus is a survivor. There's some hope in the story of Jesus that that, that harm does not have the last word, even though um, the wounds remain. Uh, and if it's true, if Jesus is a part of the divine community, and I confess that he is, it means that not only is Jesus a religious trauma survivor, but also that God is a religious trauma survivor. God experiences this in God's self and takes it up into the divine life and deals with the fractures of abuse and trauma and death in God's self in the crucifixion and the resurrection. God, God brings healing and liberation from this in the midst of this crucifixion and resurrection story. Earlier we talked about uh, the definition of uh, trauma as what, ha- what we hold inside uh, in the absence of an empathetic witness. Uh, so conversely, if we want to think about trauma healing, uh, healing from trauma occurs in the presence of an empathetic witness. It occurs when someone comes to us and says, I see you. Uh, I see your experiences. I'm in solidarity with you. And even in that acknowledgement, even in that witnessing, healing occurs. What if, what if in, in the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus is an empathetic witness to our pain and to the pain of our neighbors? Jesus is in solidarity with us. Jesus sees our pain, our abuse, and our suffering. Uh, and and by, by virtue, even of witnessing the pain of those who experience abuse and trauma, there's healing that occurs in being seen by Jesus in that way. Uh, and, you know, there, there are lots of ways to see and view the cross. 
I don't, I don't want to cast aside any of them. But I can't help but to wonder if this is not a really important meaning of the cross right now for our friends and neighbors and church folks who need to see that Jesus knows what it's like and cares about them and believes them and acknowledges and grieves with them the weight of the harm that they've experienced. So, if Jesus is an empathetic witness to our pain and the pain of our neighbors, what if the work of the church, oh boy, come on. There we go. What if the work of the church is to join Jesus as empathetic witnesses to the pain of our neighbors? What if that's our posture in the world, in our neighborhoods, in our relationships? Um, That's what I want to kind of wind down talking a little bit about to take the frames from uh, a a trauma expert, uh, Harvard psychiatrist. Her name is Judith Herman. She wrote uh, 30 years ago uh, a seminal book called Trauma and Recovery. And um, actually, last month, uh, 20 plus years later, a project she says she put on the shelf for more than 20 years for various reasons. She's just published a follow-up to this book, which I've been reading this week and I'm geeking out about, uh, <laughs> called Truth and Repair. Um, and I'm, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a little bit about what I'm learning from Truth and Repair as well. But in Trauma and Recovery, uh, Judith Herman is one of the first who extends this conversation about trauma. She brings it out of the, the PTSD conversations that are happening uh, in experiences of soldiers coming back from war. And she says, look, we're seeing this in instances of sexual assault and domestic violence. She's the first to kind of coin the idea of complex trauma, the trauma that occurs when it's spread out over time and is cumulative in effect. Um, and and uh, she suggests in her first book three stages of recovery. And, and she is imagining you know, a more clinical or therapeutic kind of environment. But I, I think these are, these are great tips just for being a decent human and being a good neighbor. Um, and so I want to I talk briefly about her stages. I've adapted her language um, because I'm a preacher and I have to alliterate things so that I can remember them. So the language is not exactly the same, uh, but hopefully it will give you some handles for, uh, for remembering it too. Um, the first is her language. It's the, it's the concept of safety. That The first stage in relationships and in trauma healing is creating safety. Uh, we, pastors, ministers, friends who care about those who have survived trauma, we don't get to decide when it's safe. We don't get to say, you know, uh, the, the, the end decider is not, oh, I'm a safe person. We're safe people when our friends say we're safe. And it takes as long as it takes. It, it, it takes years sometimes. Uh, and which, just as an aside, uh, it requires us to let go of any need to control any outcomes, to have anything happen, to have any results that we're trying to orchestrate or engineer We can't be safe if we have some ulterior motives for something that we're driving at for our neighbor and our friend. To be safe means that we're we're not defensive when they share their experiences of harm with us. Or, you know, as a pastor, when I first told some of my friends that I was a pastor, I could see the trauma in their bodies. 
they'd stiffen up, you know, like, or freeze like a deer in the headlight, or just, they would just leave. Uh, and uh, initially I was like, what is happening? I mean, I know that people have a tough relationship with the church, but I was seeing trauma responses right in front of me, right? Uh, being a safe person is the ability to hold those responses and to see the context of those responses and to do the interior work enough to, uh, to be grounded and to not take it personally. Um, to imagine, yeah, there's, there's a good chance that my friends who are not in churches have some pain associated with religion um, or with Christianity even in particular. So we, we create this relationship of safety and we let our friends um, dictate the terms and tell us we'll know that we're safe when they start sharing their story with us, when they feel like they're safe enough to open up to us and share, which is um, the second stage where um, it's in this stage that um, acknowledgement occurs, that, that our friends, our neighbors are able to tell us the harmful things that happened to them. It was what, it was what I was unwittingly doing. I didn't know I was doing this when I, I stumbled into interviewing my friends um, to open up space. And it was actually, it was a gift because I would have talked a lot more had I not been in interviewer mode, right? Uh, What I needed to do was shut up and listen to my friends, to hear their stories, and to say, oh, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. When our friends tell their stories, the role of the witness, the empathetic witness, is to come alongside of it in agreement, to say, that was wrong. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. That should never have happened, period, especially in a church especially with Christian people or in a religious setting. And we acknowledge it with our friends and we lament it and we grieve it with them. Just by doing that, it opens space for healing. It helps that trauma to unwind and untangle from their bodies and their minds. Um, so we, we listen to the stories. And in, then in the, the third stage, it's a stage of support and reconnection is the language that that Herman uses, uh, the survivor becomes their own philosopher and theologian. Uh, as they're healing and reconnecting to life and to purpose, lots of survivors find a survivor mission where the source of their harm becomes their mission to bring healing in life. Uh, and it, it, is, it should never have happened, but at the same time, it's craftily redeemed. It's not, it's not their full identity, but it gives them some sense of purpose to be a good human and a good neighbor in the world. Uh, and so we, we walk alongside. Most of my spiritual conversations of death, they don't happen here. They don't happen here. They happen here. Uh, I, uh, and, and most of the time, I don't prompt them. Uh, I receive them. I enter as a conversation partner as folks are experiencing healing and they're curious, okay, what does this mean for my faith and for the way that I see God in the world on the other side of these fractures that I've experienced? If, if, if evangelism or love or care is word heavy in this stage, uh, trauma will, um, will block it. Trauma responses because trauma keeps us locked kind of in our, our lizard brain, our amygdala, uh, it doesn't allow access to the upper rational brain. 
So com uh, to the extent somebody's traumatized by religion and that's triggered, it doesn't do good. To, it's not helpful or effective to have a lot of spiritual conversation because um, their, their body is locked up. Yeah? So a, a lot of my spiritual conversation happens in this support stage. And even then, to continue to be safe, I'm constantly releasing the outcomes of those conversations to the agency of my neighbors and to the agency of God but especially the, the agency of my neighbors. God is not coercive. God is not worried or in a hurry. Uh, so I can be there and be present and let it take as much time as it takes and let happen whatever needs to happen. Uh, I can just hold it and hold it loosely. The last stage. So Judith Herman writes this book, Truth and Repair, that's just come out. And she says, you know, I think there's a fourth stage. Uh, and this stage emerged as I asked survivors, what, what does healing look like? Uh, she imagines this stage, her language for it is justice. Uh, and for the sake of essence, similarly, I would say some sense of shalom, some sense of wholeness and peace. What does it look like when uh, those who survive are reconnected um, to life, to spiritual community? Um, shalom looks like um, repair and acknowledgement. Sometimes it can look like apology and reconciliation, though that many times is not possible or preferred. But I think this, this imagination is so powerful, though, because isn't it the, the, the hope and the glimpse of the kingdom of God arriving in our world, where God is reconciling all things to God's self? I think Herman is uh, she's hinting at that stage and her, her wonderings about what does it look like for, for justice to be achieved, for shalom to occur in relationships. Um, all right, let me stop and just take some questions for a few minutes as we wind down. Yes, ma'am. Well, first of all, I'm a therapist, and I want to tell you, I cannot believe you took this subject on and did such an excellent job in this short amount of time. Right on. Really, yeah. really Thank nice you. job. Yeah. And I agree with I was just, the reason I raised my hand is going back to the second uh, theme that you said you were carrying as you interviewed uh -huh. <laughs> these people was that uh, you said, uh, uh, or the third one, I'm, no, the second one, mistreating those at the margins. Uh -huh. It almost sounded like you were saying the church pushes these people to the margin. Well, I think, sure, uh, so I think, you know, so it makes me think about the, um, the umbrella of protection. Yeah. There are, there are, there is theological imagination that, in my opinion, inherently marginalizes people right. to the extent that they're not prioritized in right. that power hierarchy, right. um, or the theological imagination that would uh, that would imagine queer folks as anathema or worthy of condemnation. Uh, it makes me think about another one of my friends, Dirk who was in Churches of Christ in the 1980s, and he heard uh, preaching from the pulpit about Romans 1 and how HIV and AIDS was God's punishment on the gay community. And he said, like Teresa, I've, I'm out of here. I'm not safe in this place. I will never come back to church. Um, so, yes, I, I think in, in both of those instances, there's theological imagination that I don't think is particularly healthy that inherently marginalizes people 
who are not at the center of the the power. That. Sorry, Siri. I'll try again. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So this dovetails off of. Um, so as a witness of this happening, then, and as someone who is also in the church seeing this happen to my friends, hearing this being preached X, Y, and Z. Can you speak a little bit to um, the sense of responsibility that I feel to go up to someone and say, you're hurting these people in this way, and like, not speak on their behalf, but mm. to, to say, like, my friend doesn't have the capacity to be like, ouch, this hurts, mm. and then um, they just don't know what's going on. So it's like, where's our responsibility as Christians to step in and say something, and where is it our responsibility to just be there for the Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it strikes me, uh, as you say that, that um, I wrote this book because I felt like I had a responsibility to speak to folks who may, may even, in the best of intentions, unwittingly be causing deep harm to their neighbors because of ways that we're thinking about God and church. So I do think there is a... Um, I, I, I agree with what you're saying, that lots of times it's not safe or preferred. Uh, it could only lead sometimes to more danger or harm or abuse for survivors to return, to confront on their own, to say, hey, uh, this is wrong, this is bad, because they enter into those same power differentials again. Um, and so maybe part of being an empathetic witness uh, in this shalom stage is being advocates. Um, and not to triangulate uh, and put our friends in the middle of us, but to approach folks if we have relationship to say, hey, can I, can I uh, give you a, a perspective of my experience of this? Um, at the end of the day, what I want to invite us who are ministers to do is to, uh, uh, to lean in, uh, to have a humble posture, to be open, to learn, and to listen. Listen to the stories that are being told believe the stories that are being told and when necessary part of the work this is for me too we have to repent we have to turn of the ways that we've harmed folks and reimagine uh that that's part i think of the healing process that's part of how we get to shalom yeah yes i want to thank you for what you're saying i think it's brilliant and helpful uh, I have an observation that is a question at the same time, and that is, if we take your insights, I believe it provides even a hermeneutic for how to read the Gospels, Amen. especially <coughs> post-resurrection appearances. If we, when you start talking about being the witness yeah. to trauma, yep. one of the functions of crucifixion is to traumatize a whole culture, mm. right? And that's what the Romans were about, it was mm. intentional. Uh, and to me, when you read the stories of the behavior of the disciples after the crucifixion, yep. your understanding of trauma makes their behavior yep. comprehensible. Yep. The way fear works with locking themselves yep. in the upper room. Uh, they were the, traumatized. The short ending of the Gospel of Mark, yep. the last word in the Gospel of Mark is fear. Yep. They left in fear. Yeah. And to me, I, I have a little bit more compassion and understanding yes. of the whole church being traumatized. Yes. Because it continued yes. with the persecution and, and yes. the motive acts and so forth. So I think you've provided us a kind of well, hermeneutic for real. Wow. Yeah, I, I love the way you're extending that. Yeah, in further into the story. Uh, oh, there was... There's a thought there, but I lost it. It was really good. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Who else? Yeah. 
What, uh, what advice or word would you have for somebody who's uh, been hurt by the church and uh, cut, cut off from relationships, removed from leadership, told mm. they don't fit in and they, uh, they, don't, uh, they aren't behaving properly? Mm. Mm. Um, you know, I think there are, um, there are some emerging uh, networks of relationship on the interwebs of folks who have ex experienced and survived adverse experiences. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of folks find community um, through like virtual conferences where they can enter into safe spaces. I think that's one possibility. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a therapist, but I'm a big believer in trauma therapy that uh, there are things that I cannot do as a pastor that the more som somatic modalities like uh, EMDR that, that help to actually, or, or massage or yoga that help to actually work and discharge that traumatic energy from the body, um, those are pathways to healing um, that talk therapy is impervious to address, uh, you know, and, or incompetent to address. Um, uh, you know, at the, at the end of the day, I think, uh, paradoxically, uh, trauma comes through relationships, but healing also comes through relationships. And so any way to find supportive, empathetic, and compassionate community and connection, um, and that, that's, part of the, that's part of the resourcing and the connection that I'm hoping will emerge for folks, that they'll, they'll find friends, they'll find people who can see them and grieve with them along the way. But it is tricky because I just got harmed by relationship. I don't think I'm ready to go back and try to find other relationships, you know. Yeah. One more. Yes, sir. Um, I come from a missions background. Uh, and I was doing, I do post-missions care. One of the people that I was working with had, him and his wife were in Haiti when the earthquake, they were doing mission work when the earthquake hit and they switched from, you know, helping people with getting jobs and making money and, and that kind of thing to literally going and moving bodies and, and so forth and helping, helping the local bury people. But this one, one day he's, he's driving to the place in, in Port-au-Prince where he's gonna work and he looks at this hillside, and for the very first time, he sees the bodies that they were stacking there. There are 10,000 dead bodies in body bags stacked on this hillside. And he completely shuts down, and he comes up with a question of how could, you know, the classic question of how could God do this? It's and it's all a natural event. It's not caused, you know, uh, soldiers and what they see in war, that's war trauma. But this is a God-caused trauma. Mm. And so suddenly he is, it shakes his faith. He's a young Christian of about 10 years maybe. And it shakes his faith to his very core. And I find him five years later and still struggling with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like, so, you know, if we talk about God being empathetic and so forth, how can we bring that and, and uh, coordinate our 
make that mesh with with this God caused trauma where mm -hmm. all these people died. Yeah. So. So, so uh, briefly, because we're at time. Um, uh, yeah, I think there are, there are ways that sometimes because someone's relationship with God has been destroyed by the weight of the trauma that they experienced, that being an empathetic witness is, is holding that devastation too. Um, uh, and um, I don't, I, it, there's no clear path to, um, uh, to healing and reconstruction, but I, I think um, the, the degree to which we are participants with Jesus as empathetic witnesses, your human presence in the life of this this uh, this man is a stand-in for the presence of God, who I don't believe caused that trauma, but who is God's in God's own self on top of that heap, right along with everyone else experiencing that suffering. Uh, uh, so, if you're interested, uh, you can learn more CharlesKaiser.com. I've got books up here for sale. They're um, the cheapest you'll find them if you want to buy one. Uh, and I've also got paper copies of a resource list uh, that we can pass around, or you can get that resource list off the QR code. Thank you so much for coming this morning. Bless you.